Good morning. Today's passage is Mark 9, 42 to 50. This can be found on page 1013 in the Church Bibles. Causing to stumble. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt amongst yourselves and be at peace with each other. Thank you very much, Ether, for reading those uh, very serious words. And on another occasion when uh, Jesus spoke some serious words, we read that from that time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you, Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that there is one source in this world where we can go for the truth, and it is this book. And we pray that as we come to it today, to hear some difficult words, that we would be those who choose not to depart from the Lord Jesus, but to trust him, knowing that he and he alone has the words of eternal life. Amen. In April 2003, the mountaineer Aaron Ralston was climbing in Utah, with, and he went without telling anyone. On his descent from Blue John Canyon, he dislodged a boulder, pinning his right arm to the walls of to, to the canyon wall. After five days of being trapped, he realized that unless he did something radical, he was definitely going to die. So he snapped his forearm, took out a blunt pocket knife, and amputated his arm. He then rappelled down a 65-foot drop and hiked seven miles to safety. Uh, his ordeal is documented in the film 127 Hours, which wasn't particularly pleasant watching last night. 127 hours was the time he was trapped. Ralston made a very costly choice that day, but it was not as costly for him as the alternative. And likewise, when Jesus Christ calls us to follow him, he is calling us to something very costly, but not in comparison with the alternative. Today's message could, couldn't, be, couldn't hardly be more urgent 
Jesus calls all of us to costly discipleship. We'll run through uh, the passage, and firstly, we're going to see the high cost of discipleship, what it demands of us to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And then we will run through the passage for a second time, and we will notice the infinitely higher cost of non-discipleship. So let's begin. First of all, the cost of discipleship is high. Discipleship is indeed the the main issue here, by the way. So back in uh, chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus has predicted that he is going to die. And then he has said to his disciples, uh, three verses later, 834, that there are three things that are needed to be his disciple. We need to deny ourselves, we need to take up our cross, and we need to follow him. It's a high call. And then in chapter 9, verse 31, just before our passage, Jesus for a second time says that he is going to be killed. And then what he does is he gives some illustrations for his disciples of what self-denial looks like. So the way of Jesus is the way of the cross, but this is also the way for his disciples. The pattern set by the master must be followed, at least in principle, by the servant. And denying self, when we come to our passage, verses 42 to 50, means dealing drastically with our sinful flesh. And how very serious it is. Drastic dealings are demanded, for sin has the potential to cause people to stumble. Sin can destroy others, verse 42... And sin can destroy us, cause us to stumble, verses 43 and following. The stakes could not be higher. You see, it's not just the unbelieving world that needs to know there is a hell, but the professing church does too. Now, before we come to that distressing topic of hell, let's stop to see that Jesus demands that we amputate, cut off our fleshly sins. The instruments of the flesh are hand, foot, and eye. The hand stands for everything we do, the foot for everywhere we go, and the eyes for everything we look at. And Jesus says everything, everything that leads to unbelief needs to be amputated. Now, the reality is that there are certain sins which are dear to each of us. I won't attempt to catalogue them because each of us are just so different. So the sin which tempts me probably won't be the sin that tempts you. The particular sins that I'm vulnerable to will probably not be the same as the ones that attract you. The particular places, the particular images, they all pose different levels of danger to each of us. But whatever those sins are, we and they must part company or we will have to part company with the Lord. Jesus demands that his disciples be done with sin, that we would not cuddle sin, but we would cut it off from our lives. 
So if you say, I, I've, um, I've been looking at things that I shouldn't, but, but I'm going to really try and keep it under control, within boundaries. Well, Jesus says, no, cut it off. Pluck it out. Get rid of that iPad. Trash the TV. Block the broadband. Or you who say, well, I've got this relationship and I know it's not right, but again, Jesus says, cut it off. Cut it off. And you who say, oh, well, I need to do, I just need to do such and such. It's just part of being in my work culture. It's just part of being on my team or in my, in my club that I attend. Well, the message is the same. Now, most of us here will know the glorious news of the gospel, that salvation is by faith in Jesus alone. Our works cannot merit salvation at all. But what is salvation? Salvation is deliverance from the guilt of our sin, but it is also deliverance from the reigning power of sin over our lives. It's not possible that someone will be saved who continues to tolerate sin and to indulge sinful desires. What, do you have to be perfect? No. No, no Christian is perfect. But every Christian aims at perfection. That's the aim. We absolutely deny that a person can be saved by their works. But we also deny that a person can be saved without good works. No one here should think that they are saved whose life is unchanged. So we must make strenuous efforts to sever sin not as a means of salvation, but as a result of faith and as evidence that we have salvation and that we have Christ's Holy Spirit in our lives. The Lord Jesus Christ makes strong demands upon everyone who would claim to be his followers. Drastic measures to deal with the sins of the, of the flesh. Why? So that our faith and the faith of others, did you know that what you do has an effect on those around you? So that that faith is not destroyed. Three times, Jesus says, cut it off. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. And your, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. Now, the church father Origen of Alexandria took this rather literally, and he castrated himself. He didn't go far enough. Jesus taught in Mark 7 that the sins of the flesh issue from the heart. It is what comes out of a person, said Jesus, that defiles them, that makes them unclean before God. The problem, you see, isn't on the outside, it is in here. And therefore, to do this, of course, we need the Spirit of Jesus in order to obey the command of Jesus. Cut off your hand, pluck out your eye. 
Well, they're metaphors, but they are metaphors that shout to us that sin cannot be tolerated, cannot be cuddled up to in our lives. Sin is gangrene. Sin must be cut off. It must be amputated. One old Christian used to say, either we will be killing sin or it will be killing us. Saving faith, saving faith is a fighting faith. Every true believer is engaged in a deadly battle against sin from the moment they receive Jesus as Lord until the moment he, they see him in glory. Jesus said that the road of discipleship is narrow and hard. We must deal drastically with sin lest we destroy self and others. And we all underestimate just how serious sin is, me included. But as we now scan this passage for a second time, we cannot fail to be struck by the immense gravity of this warning. I recently consulted my house insurance policy to see if I was covered for something. In fact, I'm pretty sure that I'm, I'm not. I should have read the small print first. The comforting thing is that Jesus Christ doesn't deal in small print. He couldn't be clearer about the nature of discipleship and the cost of non-discipleship because despite the high cost of discipleship, secondly, the cost of non-discipleship is higher, much, much higher. Now, please notice here, you might say, well, we're just talking about discipleship here, here, right? But do notice that if you don't sever sin from your life, it doesn't end up with you being some kind of unfruitful Christian or, or backsliding believer or a, a Christian who just kind of loses one or two rewards in heaven. That's not where it ends, if we don't sever sin, Jesus says we end up in hell. Hell isn't the only motivation for being a Christian in, in the Bible. Our Lord Jesus calls us to come to him and to follow him because of his, his kindness and his grace and his gentleness and he calls us to come because of his sheer worth and majesty and authority. There are plenty of other reasons to follow Jesus Christ. Fear of hell isn't the only motivation, but it is one of them. And it may be particularly helpful for some here this morning. Some here who have been up to now unmoved by the sheer loveliness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps you've been here, you've heard dozens of sermons and, and, and week after week there's been a, a knocking upon the door of, of your heart but you've, you've failed to answer despite the fact that your house is on fire. Well, maybe you need the battering ram to just come in and knock that door down because you are unmoved by the excellence of the Lord Jesus Christ that you need to hear this warning because the sheer cost of non-discipleship 
should terrify all of us. That's the truth. When Jesus says, if you cause one of these little ones, he doesn't mean children here, he means believers, if you cause one of them to stumble, it would be better for you if a large millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. You have to ask, in what possible scenario is a quick drowning with a three-ton millstone better? And the answer is, it's better than hell. Now, no one should relish talking about hell. I don't. But if Jesus talked about hell, then I will too. And Jesus warns that hell is a real place. He warns repeatedly on many other occasions. Hell is a place of retribution, a place of banishment, and a place without end. Hell is a place of retribution. It is a place of fire, where the fire never goes out. A people where a place where people suffer the just penalty for their moral crimes against him, where everyone will be brought to book, where no one will escape. Hell is not a place of reform or rehabilitation. It is a place of retributive punishment where people get what they deserve. Now, I know this language of fire fills us with, with horror. The idea of fire isn't that it consumes us to ashes. The idea of the point of the fire is that it is painful, searingly painful. We've all burnt ourselves, we all know. The greater the sin, the greater the pain in hell. Which is why, by the way, that a person in hell will give anything, absolutely anything, to have just committed one less sin. See, many people assume that sin is trifling. But we forget to factor in that our sin, our rebellion, is always against an infinite God, a God of infinite majesty, a God of infinite holiness, a God of infinite righteousness. You remember if we were at, when we were at school, if you, if you punch a, a classmate, I hope you don't remember this, but if you punch a classmate, you're going to be in detention or worse. If you punch a teacher, you're going to be suspended or probably expelled. And if on your way home you punch a policeman, you're going to be in the slammer. What do we deserve for repeatedly, persistently, throughout our lives, offending Almighty God? Fire. Preacher and writer John Stock confessed, emotionally, I find the concept of hell intolerable. 
but the emotionally intolerable is also the truth, and therein lies its awfulness. Retribution, hell is also a place of banishment. Jesus said it's better to enter life crippled than have two feet and be thrown into hell. He says the wicked will be thrown into hell. We sometimes talk about hell as being separation from God, and that's right, but it doesn't quite do justice to what Jesus says here. He's not passive in his judgment. He will actively banish. This idea of banishment, it, it, it underscores the dreadfulness of exclusion from God's grace. And it stresses the desolation and the finality of the predicament. Jesus says, if we don't cut off our sin, he will actively throw us into hell. Hell is a place of awful banishment. Where a person will miss out on the very reason for their existence to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But in hell, no one will escape God. You know that you know that God will be present in hell, don't you? Those in hell will see God, but only in his fury and never in his goodness, never in his grace. I'm sorry to say it gets worse. Retribution, banishment, and most of all, hell is a place without end. Jesus said, it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where, and then he quotes Isaiah, the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. The most terrifying aspect of hell, the thing which we find most emotionally intolerable is that it is a place without end, that it is eternal, that it is a place where the fire is not quenched. Not my words, Christ's words. See, those in hell will not burn a little, be consumed to ashes, and then the fire go out and they be annihilated. It's that the fire will always burn. Isaiah shows us that it is a place for those who rebel against God. The name hell and the language of worms and fire derives from the valley of Ben-Hinnom, which was a deep ravine to the south of Jerusalem. And in it, the kings Ahaz and Manasseh infamous, infamously sacrificed their little ones to the idol Molech. And later it became a place where the Babylonians threw Israelite corpses, set them on fire, and left them to be eaten by worms. That's where it comes from. Now, we don't need to believe that there will be actual worms or actual fire in hell. I mean, how could there be utter darkness, which Jesus refers to hell as having utter darkness elsewhere? How can there be fire and utter darkness together? It just doesn't work. But that's not the point. 
but we should consider what it is to suffer forever and ever, day and night, from one day to another, from one year to another, in pain, wailing, weeping, and gnashing our teeth, without any possibility of moving God to pity, without a moment's relief, or hope of escape, or end. And when the sun and the moon and the stars have burnt out, to know that we will be no nearer its end than when we began. Simply awful. Why don't we just do anything we possibly can to help somebody avoid that eventuality? Gladly would somebody in hell accept annihilation were it available. But the reason that hell is endless is because it's deserved. Our obligation to love God is endless, it's infinite. Because God is infinitely great in glory, in grace, in goodness, and in majesty. So what is the purpose of hell? Well, in the endless punishment of the wicked, God will vindicate his injured majesty, and rightly so. God will demonstrate his justice. And to his little ones, the objects of his mercy, he will magnify his grace to them. How amazing will grace appear when we see the wicked in hell, knowing this, that by nature we are equally sinful as them. And apart from Christ... We deserve what they receive. Hell is a real place, a place of retribution, banishment, and without end. When our Lord Jesus speaks about hell, he does so with no relish. How do I know this? Because in another place, speaking of it, he weeps. And in Gethsemane, when he peers into the cup of his father's fury, we are told that he is deeply distressed, that he is troubled, that he is overwhelmed with sorrow. The cost of discipleship is very high, but nothing compared to the cost of non-discipleship. Now, verses 49 and 50, they continue to baffle um, the commentators, no one has all of the answers, I don't think, but the gist seems to show that we're on track in what we've been saying. Everyone will be salted with fire, everyone. So unbelievers will experience the flames of judgment. Believers, the fire, not to punish, but to purify. For One for later is to check the language of 
Leviticus 2, where salt is added to grain sacrifices to make it acceptable to the Lord. So there will be a cost of discipleship. Cutting off limbs is an unpleasant business, to say the least, yet it is purifying and it is pleasing to God. But the cost of non-discipleship outweighs any hardship from belonging to Jesus Christ. Verse 50 brings things to a perfect close. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. So to lose the savour of godly Christian living through refusal to deny self is a serious matter. It's a bit like the lumps of gypsum that you can find lying around the Dead Sea which have got the actual salt leached out of it. Spiritual vigour and warmth and effectiveness can be almost impossible to, to regain once lost. But if we maintain our personal saltiness in the world, being wholeheartedly devoted to Christ, well, that brings peace and it delivers from the danger of unbelief and the destruction that comes when we're all clambering to be king of the castle. I hope I've been clear in these last 20 minutes or so. And I think there is little that I can add by way of application, as I hope it is very obvious. But I do want to say a few words to any unbelievers here this morning, thinking about giving up sin. As I've said Amputating things from your life that you love isn't pleasant. But the alternative is often worse. Ask the person in hospital with gangrene. Ask Ralston. Ask, above all, ask Jesus Christ. And if you say, well, I can't do it, I just can't change, it's too difficult. Well, let me say that Jesus Christ can help you to hate that which is hateful to him. And if you think it's cruel to give up something which brings you so much pleasure, the truth is you will soon die. Who knows? This may be the last sermon you ever hear. By next week, you may be spending an eternity in heaven or in hell. It would be madness, wouldn't it, to go to coffee this morning and just chat about the weather like you've heard nothing when you hang over everlasting fire. The words of the song that we're, that's about to be sung to us are apt here. Meet him now as gracious saviour and not just then as judge alone. And a few words to us who call Christ saviour. It's possible there are some who presume that they will go to heaven and they will not. Salvation is by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. You cannot keep your sin and keep your hope of heaven. Either you must depart from your sin or you must hear the words of Christ. Depart from me, I never knew you. Remember that when Jesus spoke those words, and these words here, he spoke them first to disciples. 
Others here, far from presuming heaven, constantly persuade themselves that the gates of heaven will be shut to them. And it is true that you're not perfect, nor am I. But you want to be. I mean, if you were perfect, then why did Christ die? But he did. Your Savior literally experienced hell on earth so that you will never have to. He endured the fire of his father's fury at your sin. He was banished from the father's presence so that you could be welcomed in. And in his infinite being, he absorbed eternal punishment so that now there is no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if there is any desire to be free from sin in your life, where you can be sure that there is a bond of love between your heart and the Lord's, and wherever there is love for God, then do thank him that he put that love in your, your heart. We know, at least in part, how much we owe the Lord. But on that final day, when we see the wicked shrink back from the fires of hell, and when we stand before the throne, dressed in the beautiful robes of Christ's righteousness, then and only then will we fully know how much we owe him. However high the cost of discipleship, we know that it is worth it because we know that the cost of the alternative is unthinkably high. Let's take a moment to be quiet. Our musicians will come and then they will uh, help us to reflect by singing a song to us.